So if you're just now uh, joining us online, we want to welcome you to uh, Bethany United Methodist Church, where, as Audrey said, we're leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ, and to grow in his image. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. We're continuing in this series on supernatural. I want to remind you when we use that language that it does not mean unnatural, but it means more than. Uh, so uh, we want to kind of stay in that context with it. As we begin this time, and I want to remind you that the, the basic premise, the kind of the groundwork, uh, you know, belief, if you will, of the Christian church is that Christ died and was resurrected from the dead, and, and, and that basic belief in and of itself is pretty supernatural. I mean, that's not, you know, you, you and I can't do this. The only God is able to do this. So we, we begin in that place in our faith, and so why is it then that we, uh, we struggle so much with other places in our faith about this belief? And this week we're going to talk about what you believe matters, what you believe matters. And I'm, I'm going to reach back and show you a couple of pictures that we used when we did the series on fear uh, of the Belindas. And uh, in, in these photos, uh, this is where uh, they are walking the wire over Niagara Falls. And, you know, this is one of those, I don't know how you admit, you know, I, I watch them do that. And it makes my palms sweat every time I'm seeing them do this stuff. But, you know, you watch them walking out on this and uh, walking over this water and I'm just going to posit to you that, you know, you don't do this unless you really believe you got it down, right? I mean, you're not going to walk out on that wire over those falls unless you are absolutely sure that that wire is up there appropriately, that it's hung right, it's secure, it's not going to move around, that you know what you're doing, you are confident in this. Because if you get out on that wire and you have any doubts and you bobble, you are going to die, right? I mean, this is, you're going to walk out on it. You are going to be absolutely confident. When, when Scripture talks about believing or having faith, uh, the Greek word that it uses there is, is not just merely uh, a mental acquiescence to an idea. It's not simply agreeing with something. It's, it's holding it. It's believing it so firmly that, that you live into that reality. It's, it's the kind of belief you have to have to walk out on this wire. Now, you know, it, we wouldn't be real impressed with the Walendas if they said to us, you know, we're sure you can walk across that, that thing. We're sure you can do that on a wire, but they never actually did it, right? It's different. It's a different witness when they actually get out there and do it. And that's why what you believe matters. Because what you communicate to the world and the witness that you give to Christ depends very much on what you actually believe. Let's pray. Almighty Lord, we give you thanks for this morning that you've given us for the chance to be in worship, for the chance to have a choir again and be uplifted with the music. Uh, We rejoice that we are once again able to gather and that uh, we are able to see each other. So uh, come and be present with us and open our minds and hearts to what you want to share with us. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, so when Jesus was doing his ministry, and, and he's, he's, he's going out into the world, and he's beginning this ministry, and you remember he read from the scroll, Isaiah 61, and talked about, you know, he's, you know opening the, the doors for the oppressed, and, you know, bringing good news to the poor, and all these things, and he went out into the world and began to do these ministries. He's teaching, he's doing these great works of healing, and he's casting out demons, and, and, and the world kind of looked at that and wondered, okay, like, who is this really? 
You know, the ideas about who the Messiah was to be were, were varied. I mean, some people were thinking more of a political kind of leader who was going to, you know, throw the Romans out. Uh, other people were more of a, a moral kind of thing who was going to kind of purify uh, the Hebrew faith. And, and so different people had different ideas about what this is. And when he went out and began to actually live out his ministry in the world and the kingdom of God was breaking in and doing these great things, people kind of wondered about who he was. I mean, one of the questions comes from Herod. Uh, this is actually after uh, John has been executed. And uh, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on with Jesus. He was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. So you can kind of hear the discussion that's going on about who he is. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now, now Herod wanted to know this because, because Herod was pretty much afraid of everything in life. Uh, he, he was not real stable and, and probably was paranoid. But uh, if, if you've ever been over there, you might have gotten a chance to go to Masada. It's one of the fortresses that Herod built. He built others you can visit, but this is the most famous. And as you see there on the kind of tabletop of the mountain, that's where the, the, the main part of the area was. There's a wall that goes all around that, and there's storehouses and water supplies and so forth and everything up there. And then on the end of the mountain to your left, you'll notice kind of a stair-stepped structure. Uh, that actually is the, the palace that he built there. And if you get a close-up picture on it, you can see it, it stair-steps down onto these shelves on the cliff. And if you look really carefully on the right side of that cliff, you'll see a small white trail that comes down to those two lower palaces. Herod built it that way, only wide enough for one person to pass at a time so that no one would be able to send an armed force in to take him captive or to hurt him because he was constantly afraid that someone was going to do that. He, he was so concerned about that, in fact, that he actually executed a number of members of his close family out of fear that they might try to take the throne from him. So when Herod's question goes out, Herod's question is, who is this? That, that's being asked out of fear. Because when the kingdom of God breaks in with power, it's threatening to the kingdoms of the world. And Herod asked out of fear. But he wasn't the only one asking. He wasn't the only one asking. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, got to remember they're cousins, uh, who, who baptized Jesus is actually at one time in the prison. Before he's beheaded, he's in the prison uh, of, of Herod. And while he's there, he gets word about what Jesus is doing. And again, he's not really sure what the Messiah is supposed to be up to. And, and I'm sure if you're in a prison, you might be thinking about, well, it would be okay if he overthrew the government because then I might get out of here. Uh, but, you know, he, he's not really sure. And so when his disciples come to him and tell him about all the things Jesus is doing, he calls two of them and he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you what it says in the Old Testament and how I'm doing that. He doesn't make a great theological argument here. He doesn't spin out a bunch of words or anything. He just says, you go tell John what I'm doing. Because that is the greatest witness of the inbreaking of the kingdom. When the kingdom breaks in, amazing things begin to happen. People find wholeness and people find healing, whether it's in the miraculous kind of events or the more ordinary events. But when the kingdom comes in, things begin to happen. And so he says, you, you go, tell, go tell John what you've seen, and then he'll know. He'll know. Now, as he talks about what he's done, if you don't remember, a couple of weeks ago we talked about his commission in the disciples. That's you and me, incidentally. And you notice how this sounds a little bit about what he shows to John. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. It's these inbreakings of the kingdom of God that he sends them out to do so that people will know that God has come near. That's the power of the witness that he sends them out to make. And, and, and that's still our call. That's still the sign that people are looking for. You know, people are still expecting and looking for God to break into the world. And, and, and I know we, we have concerns about, you know, some of the scams and abuses that have taken place. But nonetheless, when, when people are, are, are wanting to encounter the presence of God, they're looking for, for more than just a nice conversation. They're wanting to see the power of God at work in the midst of the world. And, and are we people who believe enough that Jesus is still doing those things, that the kingdom of God is still breaking in, that God's power is still at work? Or are we trying to convince people by ourselves? Dr. David Watson is the professor of New Testament and the academic dean at United Theological Seminary. A couple of years ago, he wrote these words. He said, most Christians are entirely comfortable talking about gifts of wisdom and faith, but healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, these may be harder to believe, but why? Simply put, the less a particular gift seems to require of God, the easier it is for us to believe. We have been taught not to expect very much of God, and our prayers match those expectations. We may or may not actively disbelieve in these gifts, but passive disbelief is quite common. The less a particular gift requires of God, the easier it is for us to believe, because that means we're doing it, right? It's less about God, it's more about what we're doing. And, and that's easy, we understand that. We, we're in control of that. We're more comfortable with that. We've been taught not to expect much of God. When I was going through school, and, and this was kind of a teaching that was given to us, and uh, a number of other seminaries at the time did that, they taught us, you know, be careful when you go to pray with someone and, and that's sick or whatever, be careful about praying for healing, because they might not get well. Well, yeah, that's always a possibility, isn't it? Uh, but, but we shouldn't, yeah, you don't want to raise their expectations that God might do something. Really? I mean, we were actually trained that way, Right? Our expectations were lowered. Don't, don't expect things of God. Don't ask things of God. And, and in the end, what that reflects is not so much an active disbelief that God can do it, but kind of a passive disbelief that God will do it. And so, so often we are out in the world, and instead of allowing the witness of God to work through us, 
we're trying to make it on our own. And instead of hearing from God, they hear from us. And instead of seeing from God, they see us. A long time ago, St. Augustine had a, a saying that we're all created with this, this hollow place in our, in our hearts and our souls that only God can fill. And the, the kind of the way that's gotten translated, I guess, or, or colloquialized is, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. You may have heard that, but it's not exactly how he said it. But, but, but anyway, this idea that there, there, there's a longing in us that only God can fill. And when people come to us and people ask us about God, that's what they're trying to fill. Augustine did not say, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a longing in each one of us for, for Tom, or a longing in each one of us for Jim, or a longing in each one of us for Sally, or a longing in each one of us for Bill. They're not looking for us. They're longing for God. And so when... when when we refuse to allow God, when we passively disbelieve that God is doing and instead do what we can do, we don't meet that longing. It's no wonder that our witness is not stronger than what it is. But when God comes into these places, God does these amazing things and God brings a wholeness and a healing that's not just physical, but emotional and spiritual and relational. God remakes us into who God wants us to be and God has created us to be. And sometimes we forget that when we talk about miraculous kind of things, that, it, that it's the change that God works in us is every bit as miraculous as what God does for anyone else. You know, physical healing in some ways is the easier thing to do because most of us, if we're sick, want to be made well physically. In all the healings in the New Testament, you know, there's only one place where Jesus actually asks, do you want to be made well? He may ask in others, what would you have me do for you? But only once does he say, do you want to be made well? But when we have spiritual disease in us, oftentimes we're not really sure we want to be well. We've become so comfortable with our brokenness. We've become so comfortable with our sinfulness that really, we're not sure we want that changed. We just want to feel better about it. But the presence of Christ is transformative. So you have these uh, stories um, coming in here where, <clears throat> you know, Jesus is, is talking to his disciples, and, and this is in Luke's version, which is fairly brief, and he says, who did the crowd say I am? And they reply... Uh, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Very complimentary. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now Matthew unpacks this story, and I love the, what Eugene Peterson, the way he tells it. When Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the Son of Man is? They replied, some think he's John the baptizer, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He pressed them. And how about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus came back. God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers. My Father in heaven, God himself let you in on this secret of who I really am. And now I'm going to tell you who you are, really are. You are Peter, a rock. 
This is the rock on which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. And that's not all. You will have complete and free access to God's kingdom, keys to open any and every door, no more barriers between heaven and earth, earth and heaven. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is no in heaven. I mean, now this is, this is an amazing change in Peter that's taking place. Now, first off, you need to go up to this point. He's, he's Simon is his more common name. And, and it's at this point that Jesus names him Peter. But actually, in Greek, it's Petros, uh, which is the word for rock. You know, you are, you are Simon the rock. And on this rock, it's a, a kind of a word play that's going on that we miss sometimes. But that's what Peter is the translation of. You're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. This is, this is Peter now. Now, wait a minute. This is Peter. Remember who Peter is when we meet him? He's the fisherman. He's inarticulate. He has anger management issues. He has impulse control issues, right? This is Peter. And you're going to build the church on this guy? Really? And yet in all the disciples, the only one who speaks up when Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? Is Peter. And after the, the day of Pentecost, it's Peter that stands up and addresses the crowd. It's Peter, Peter that stands before the courts and addresses them. Peter, the, the man who couldn't put his words together, the man who couldn't control his impulses and his anger, becomes Peter, the rock on which the church is built, the articulate spokesperson for the gospel. Something has profoundly changed in him when he is in the presence of God and encounters the kingdom of God breaking in to this world in Jesus Christ. And that may be, in some ways, the greatest miracle of all, the change that God works in us. And not just in Peter, there's other stories. Uh, Jesus is going to Jericho, going through Jericho at one time, and as he comes into the city, comes toward the center of the city, uh, he finds this, this old sycamore tree that's growing there. And in this old sycamore tree, a local tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus has climbed up in that tree because Zacchaeus was... Yeah, he was a wee little man. You know the song, right? So he climbs up there because he can't see over the crowd. And, and he's up there looking to catch a, a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus sees him up there as he's walking by. And when he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Notice he doesn't say, I'd like to come to your house, right, like we would do. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, I know you don't like the IRS necessarily, but, you know, they have a function to, to do. But, but, but in this time, the guys that were collecting the taxes were collecting taxes for the occupying government. So they were de facto considered to be traitors. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Zacchaeus goes, from, Zacchaeus goes from being the lost to being one of the sons of Abraham, one of the people of God. When he encounters 
the kingdom of God breaking in in Jesus Christ. I mean, it changes who we are. Peter, writing in his first letter to the early church, even says it this way, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're, you're, you're not just ordinary people anymore. God has, God has taken a hold of you. God has chosen you and, and has changed you into this living stone that's being built into this, this temple uh, to offer worship up to God. This is, this is a, a holy calling on your life. This is a profound change in who we are. It redefines our identity. And as people who are chosen by God, people chosen by God, our eyes are opened up to see the way God looks upon others around us. Henry Nouwen, one of the great saints of the 20th century, writes these words, when we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their own chosenness. Instead of making us feel that we are better, more precious, or valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. Now, I'm going to posit to you that that in and of itself is pretty miraculous. Because most of the time when we feel that we are chosen, we decide that we are special. And that makes us better than someone else. That's kind of who we are by nature. But when we understand that we are chosen of God, we are one of the living stones, that changes who we are. And now we begin to be able to see those possibilities, that same chosenness with which God looks upon others. I mean, this is, a, this is an amazing kind of thing that, that, that's being positive here is that you know, when Jesus walks into the midst of the world and brings the power of God into the midst of the world, things happen. People are healed physically, emotionally, spiritually. People find wholeness in their lives. All kinds of restoration occurs and we are brought back to who we are supposed to be. But only if you really believe that God has the power to do that still and God will do that still. Remember, what you believe matters. You know, when you walk out on that wire over the waters of sin and death, what you believe matters. What you believe matters deeply and profoundly. Deeply and profoundly. Peter, in that moment, Peter, bless his heart, Peter was the only one that said, God's Messiah. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's the only one that spoke up. So, what do you believe? What do you believe? I'm going to share a few words. This is written by Carolyn Moore. And this is a, it's so well written that I'm just going to read this passage to you and share it with you. I don't usually do this, but she does such a great job with this. This is what Christians believe. We believe Jesus is the hope of the world. We believe he is the way to life. We believe he has defeated the power of sin and death, so we have nothing left to fear. Nothing. To carry a spirit of fear is to believe death still has power over our lives. Those who follow Jesus have nothing to do with fear 
or with lies that make us live fearfully. We are not fearful people. We are hopeful people whose biggest questions about life and death have been answered. Followers of Jesus are called to represent the love of God among hurting people and to communicate through our lives the hope Jesus accomplished through the cross and empty tomb. We are the body of Christ on earth in this age. We share his values and his victory. When we choose the body of Christ as our identity, we set aside all rights to this world and submit to the values of the kingdom of God. We give everything to the service of those values. Let me say that again in another way. Our primary work as followers of Jesus is to honor the heart of God and live headlong into his values. This means that, that everything, our homes, families, funds, opinions, must submit to those values. We are no longer our own. We no longer get to live as we please, do as we please, say what we please. To the extent that we carry fear, anger, prejudice, unkindness, untruthfulness, discouragement, and selfishness, we compromise the body of Christ and deny our claims. How dangerous that is. To the extent that we display faith, hope, and love, we honor the body of Christ as the highest value and the purest love, as the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is worth my absolute solemn devotion. Whatever I have to give up in the pursuit of more perfectly honoring this grace-filled, loving, creative God of the universe is worth it. He is worth my attention. He is worth my surrender. He is worth my trust. And he is worth the spiritual stretch toward living a truly supernatural life. So let me repeat again. What you believe matters. So here's some questions I want to leave with you to consider this morning. First off, do you, do you agree that what we believe matters? And, and when does stepping out in faith for you feel riskiest to you? What doubts does it raise in you? And how does that hinder your clear witness in the world? What do you believe the life of Jesus tells us about the heart of God? And how does that belief and the presence of the Holy Spirit help you face your fears and doubts? Do you understand yourself as chosen? How does your chosenness help you reveal the chosenness of others and the biggie? Are you actively honoring the heart of God? in all your living. What you believe matters. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you surround us. And when we are beginning to walk out on that wire of faith over the waters of sin and death, that you come around us and we ask that you pour into us an absolute confidence that you have us, that your power is holding us up, that you are guiding us, that you give us a trust that permeates to the very core of who we are and a confidence that you are still in the world and you are still doing amazing things in the midst of this world. Be with us that we might step out on that wire in absolute confidence. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.